Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and the sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right. You're invited to join our chat room by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. My partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio and monitoring the chat room now. And she just loves to give us her words of wisdom for the day. So share those, Ravinder. You're a cheeky so-and-so. I was just talking about the fact that I'm not feeling very wise today, I suppose. So, yeah, he's winding on me. But words of wisdom, I would probably say for today, take a few moments to enjoy the holiday season. You know, it's easy to get so busy, caught up in everything that you have to do, the planning, the preparations out there, especially when you've got families that, you know, it can be easy to forget to take that few moments to yourself just to enjoy having family around and enjoying the season of goodwill it feels good so join me in it all right remember to wrap all the packages and when you know you can fold those folds never mind <laughs> that looks You're enough winding on me again huh? <laughs> all right in this week's spotlight i would like to discuss the idea of winning it seems today that there are many who discourage winning For everyone is a winner. Now, the idea is applaudable, for it is designed to encourage people to participate who might not otherwise. As such, schools across the country, by way of one example, often reward mediocre effort. The problem with this strategy is real life. In real life, the best candidate wins the job. The most attractive wins the beauty contest. The best grade point earns a scholarship. The best athlete goes on to play pro ball, and so forth. In other words, in the real world, winning is all about where you end up in life. What do, you, what do we really teach our children, our young people, when they are rewarded for inadequate effort? To assume that every insufficiency is the best the person can do fails to encourage them to do better. If winning isn't important, how do we motivate that young person to reach down and do their very best and to reach further down to find improvement every time they have an opportunity to compete? As much as so many today wish to think that winning and losing is an obsolete standard from an old America, the fact is life is all about competition. You compete for your mate, for your job, for advancement, and so on. Even our political process is all about competition, and competing to win the hearts and minds of the electorate is not just a political matter. We all compete to win our way with our friends, family, peers, fellow workers, etc. Think about all the negotiations you personally have been involved in, 
whether as a spouse, a parent, an employee, or an employer. Of course, we want win-win scenarios where possible, but that's not always feasible. I remember reading a book several years ago, the title of which was F, that infamous four-letter word that begins with F, F Yes, by Wing Lee. Wing Fing. Fing suggests a story where his teen daughter, 15 or 16 years old, informs him that she is going to drop out of high school with her high school boyfriend and run away, begin their life together. Fing thinks about this and says something like, Sure, why not? F yes, run off and get pregnant and live in some slum while your dude hunts for work or make up a cardboard sign and beg on the street corner. F yes, and after a couple of years when the romantic excitement wears thin and he leaves you, well, you can take the kid or maybe more than one and find a shelter to live in. F yes, no education, high school dropout, some shelter will take you in and your kid's in as well. F yes, why not? For Fing, the art of persuasion begins with agreement. Still, the negotiation is essential unless you want your daughter living in the street. For me, competition is an essential tool in a balanced set of life skills. That doesn't mean you have to win, only that you must do your very best. That should be the measure and criterion behind a healthy perspective when it comes to winning and losing. My thoughts anyway, what are yours, Ravinder? You know, the whole idea of competing, um, you know, I think it's important. I, it's something that I have always done, I suppose. Even when I, you're not, you know, competing for a job or stuff like that, I like to compete with myself. I mean, there can be jobs I'm doing that are pretty boring. So if it's just a routine kind of job at home, well, then I see if I can do it faster because that'll get it out of the way, do it quicker, do it better. Um, and then, of course, at work, I, I use the same thing. Um, every time I achieve something, well, then I aim for something higher. So, yeah, I think competition is a way to bring out the best in people. Um, I do understand why they're trying to be encouraging to kids in school. Um, I just don't think that it necessarily works. Sometimes the best ideas actually have the worst outcome. Yep. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week's show featured John Barge, and we discussed his work and book, Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. Jory wrote, loved your show with Professor Barge. The interview was too tempting. I had to buy his book, and it is a brilliant read. Thanks for the info. Richard wrote, Barge is one of my favorite guys out there. Eleanor wrote, the spotlight about authorities during the Barge show was right on. As a professional biologist, all this new age stuff you find on the Internet about epigenetics and other things is not only dumbed down, but largely wrong. Moving on, Francisco Rota, I have been using InterTalk for a couple of years now, and I am a big believer in this technology. It's incredible what tuning into a positive frequency can help us accomplish. I personally listen to the Miracles and Confidence programs as I have struggled with anxiety for a long time and didn't want it to impede on my progress in life. I'm happy to say InterTalk has played a role in helping me achieve a more peaceful state of mind. I believe I am well on my way to fulfilling my greatest potential. I believe your programs could help many of my customers achieve a happier and more healthy life. 
I was hoping to discuss the possibility of being an affiliate or distributor of your programs via my website. Well, Francisco, we'd love to have you join our affiliate program, and you can enroll in it by visiting the website at intertalk.com. Okay, that's all the time that we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show. Never split the difference. Negotiating as if your life depended on it with author Chris Foss. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Chris was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as well as the FBI's hostage negotiation representative for the National Security Council's hostage working group. Before becoming the FBI lead international kidnap negotiator, Chris served as the lead negotiator for the New York City Division of the FBI. He was a member of the New York City Joint Terrorist Task Force for 14 years. During Chris's 24-year tenure in the FBI, he was trained in the art of negotiation, but not only the FBI, but Scotland Yard and Harvard Law School. He is also a recipient of the Attorney General's Award for Excellence in Law Enforcement and the FBI Agents Association Award for Distinguished and Exemplary Service. He is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business and a lecturer at the Marshall School of Business at University of Southern California, and he has taught business negotiation at Harvard University. His book is a great read. You will love it. On that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Chris Voss. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. We like to know three things on this show. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, what is the purpose of your book, and what are you personally passionate about, Chris? Yeah, hostage negotiations is just emotional intelligence. The purpose of the book is to show that the emotional intelligence of hostage negotiators applies to everything that we do. And that's what I'm passionate about. I think it's cool. I love helping people make deals that they would never otherwise make. All right. You heard today's spotlight. What are your thoughts on winning and losing? Yeah, uh, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. So competition, uh, if you're hyper-competitive, if you're too competitive, sometimes you don't work well in a team. Um, And it's understanding that we got to succeed as a team. The human species is hardwired to collaborate anyway. The only cavemen that survived were the ones that collaborated. The ones that didn't collaborate died alone in the dark. So at some point in time, you you can't kill your allies. you got to pick out your allies. you got to work as a team. And that's really kind of what the book is about. I mean, somebody stopped me at dinner the other night and he said, your book is about how to get how do we get each other on the same team? And then how do we as a team attack the problems that we're faced with? So that's I look at I I believe in competition. Just you got to be careful that you don't compete with the people you should collaborate with. Excellent point. We are herd animals. Um, You're negotiating with uh, a terrorist. Tell me about win-win in a scenario such as that. Yeah, well, you know, there's there's two things about win-win. First of all, there's people that espouse a philosophy, philosophy openly, 
and they're one of two types, either suckers or the sharks. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and But then in reality, for a negotiation to be successful, for the other side to implement, they got to get something out of it. So I just don't use that terminology. I know if I get into a negotiation and the people on the other side of the table right away say, let's make this a win-win deal. We want a win-win. That's a monstrous tell that they want to take every dime I have. The soon, if they say it right up front, they're trying to get me to drop my guard. And then if I feel I got a win-win, then they're going to try to take me hostage. They're going to try to make me feel like it's fair. You know, They're going to use the F word on me, the fairness word. They're going to knock me all around. So, But at the end of the day, it's, there's no such thing as a one-off. You see people again. They stay in your environment. They're there to haunt you, if you will. If they lose then since revenge is a dish best served cold, then they lay and wait for you and you accumulate enemies and pretty soon you get destroyed. Interesting, and I totally agree, but all right. Let's go to your book for a second. You opened it up with a story about Harvard and what today you refer to as calibrated questions. Share the story with our audience and explain what you mean by a calibrated question, will you? Yeah, well, a calibrated question is a more refined take on what people would ref normally refer to as open-ended questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. The reporter's questions are, as Jim Camp in his book, Start With No, was written back in 2002, he referred to as, as interrogative-led questions. Now, you want to calibrate them a little bit more for effect. You pretty much refine them down just to what and how. You ask them in a deferential manner. And they're a stealth weapon. They're a way to gain the upper hand, the way to put the other side in problem-solving mode, the way to burden them with the problem, very deferentially so they don't know how you've blocked them in. So I'm up at Harvard, and I run across Bob Manukin, who's the head of the program on negotiation, and he's a great guy and has written a brilliant book called Beyond Winning. And the second chapter of that has the best chapter on empathy I've ever read um, it's phenomenal. It's worth the book in and of itself. But he's kind of fascinated with this hostage negotiator. You know, what am I? Am I a unicorn? Am I a singing and dancing monkey? I mean, what kind of a creature is this hostage negotiator? So he says, you know, you know, if, if I was a kidnapper and I had your son a hostage, what, what would you use on me? Now, I already know where this is going. As soon as he asked me this question, I know he's getting ready. He wants to do a little one-on-one. -on -one. You know, the most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in, and this negotiation has already begun. So I got to get him to drop his guard. And so I say, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do much. I'm just going to ask you a couple open-ended questions. And he kind of goes, really? I mean, yeah, that's it. And <laughs> he says, all right. And, you know, he gets his secretary in with a tape recorder and he gets somebody else in to watch. Now, all of a sudden, he wants to go one on one in front of in front of an audience. And he says, all right. All right, boss, I'm a kidnapper. I got your son. Million dollars. Million dollars. By tomorrow morning, we kill your son. And I just look at him and I say, how am I supposed to do that? It's <laughs> just he kind of blinks about four times and it. You know, this innocuous open ended question now calibrated question stops him dead in his tracks and that's the whole design it catches people off guard it stops them dead in their tracks and that's what i did to him and and you know that's a phrase that you you've used very successfully in 
in not just negotiating in a, in a hypothetical like that, but in real life situations. And how am I supposed to do that? And how do you respond when they say, well, I don't really care how you do it? Well, and so then what a lot of people view that as failure. And we have to reteach people a little bit because how am I supposed to do that? Ask deferentially. Um, it's like if you got up to bat in Major League Baseball and you hit a home run nine out of ten times. Nine out of ten times. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a home run. It catches yeah. you off other side soft guard. But you get used to hitting a home run that when you swing and, it, and you don't hit it out of the park, people are shocked. Now, your job as a negotiator is push the other side to their limits to find out what their limits are and keep them at the table. And if somebody says to you, I really don't care how you do it, you just got to do it if you want the deal, what you've just done is your job. You've pushed them to their limit without the negotiation blown up, without them screaming at you, calling you names, pounding their ta- hands on the table and storming out, which is normally the way people find limits in negotiations. And they got to go back and they got to repair all the, the toxic waste from the nuclear explosion. This is a way to push people to the limit. And the worst thing anybody's ever said in thousands of negotiations is I don't care how you do it. You have to do it. And at that point, you've done your job. And then you either pivot to another term or you say, I'm sorry, it still doesn't work for me. And you walk away. Interesting. I like that. All right. Tell us about the Black Swan Group that you founded and why the name Black Swan? Yeah, you know, I, and back in 2007, when I was leaving the bureau, I came across uh, Nicholas Talim's book, The Black Swan, and was inspired by the title. It's a great book. It's a smart read. And then as I dug into his title, you know, he said, The Impact of the Highly Improbable. And it was actually inspired by the metaphor of the first discovery of black swans in Australia back then, I believe the 16th century. Western Europe only saw white swans, and they said, wow. If a swan was black, that'd be crazy. That would never happen. And then they found black swans. So he was inspired by the impact of the highly improbable being game-changing events. So we love that as a metaphor because if you're a black swan negotiator, you're a game-changer in ways that people don't even see because you're, you're doing it in tiny little ways that have massive differences on the outcome. Okay, you have a blog. The The Black Swan Group has a blog, and anybody can subscribe to that. I know I've subscribed to it. I'm going to ask you a few questions about some of the things in your blog later. But while we're on that subject, give the Earl for your blog to our audience. Um, I, I suggest it to everyone out there. There are some great tips in this. So uh, what is that, Earl, sir? Yeah, it's, uh, it's on our website, blackswanltd.com called the edge and actually we got a text to sign up function that's the easiest way to sign up if i could share that sure please do yes yes you you text to the number 22828 that's the number you're texting to 22828 and you send a message fbi empathy all one word don't let your spell check put a space between that fbi empathy lowercase one word to 228 28 and you'll get a response back and uh it'll ask for your email to sign you up and a newsletter and uh the blog the newsletter is free comes out every tuesday morning short sweet gets you rocking and rolling at the first part of the week yeah and and, and it is a powerful blog and, and you know so far we've talked about 
um, you know, kind of the hostage stuff, the FBI stuff. But but what you teach in this book has value for all walks of life. Um, yeah. You could be a salesperson. You, you could be thinking about getting married and proposing to someone who, you know, who might even want a prenup. I, I mean, everything <laughs> in her life, you know, has a negotiation standard, including raising our children. So yeah. do go do go sign up for it. All right. You say the golden rule is wrong. Golden How is, is that? How is that? Isn't that the craziest thing you ever heard? Treat people the way you want to be treated. Here's the problem with that. Now, first of all, that ain't a bad start because that eliminates a lot of bad behavior. But we believe the world splits up into basically three conflict mode types, fight, flight, make friends. And the world is pretty evenly divided among these three. We pulled people from China to Germany to Bogota, Colombia. And we get some pretty solid data. We've seen this shake out in the thirds. So if that crazy idea is true, then that means that two out of three of the people you encounter are the other types, which means they're not you. And so we to kick it up a notch, instead of treat people the way you want to be treated, treat people the way they need to be treated. And it's a two millimeter shift that makes you much more focused on the other person because like, all right, so I'm an assertive and I like direct and honest. And if I ask you a question, I want to an answer. Well, that direct and honest is like getting hit in the face with a brick. Now, I like that. You know, I like a good brawl. But two out of three people don't like that brawl. And I can't say, well, I just treated you the way I want to be treated. You know, that's just not fair. I need I need to adapt to you. So in place of the golden rule. Well, we have a break coming up. So I'll tell you what, when we come back, I'm going to ask you if we're not going to treat them the way we would want to be treated. How do we know how to treat them at all? How do we know what they have in mind as to how they want to be treated? All right. We're speaking with Christopher Voss about his work and book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. It's a great read. Do go get the book. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Black Swan LTD. One word, BlackSwanLTD.com. Now we have a video for you from the Black Swan Group detailing three negotiation techniques that really work. So if you're not already in our chat room, now's the time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used Inner Talk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your Inner Talk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. 
Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Christopher Voss about his work and book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at blackswanlimited.com. That's blackswan, L-T-D, all is one word, dot com. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology, as you know by now, is a field of research uh, with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. All right, your chosen music, Chris, is Elevation by U2. Please share with our audience why this one is so special to you and how it informs us about who you are. Ah, wow. All right, so it's kind of classic rock. It's got great energy. Um, it's optimistic. It's abundant thinking. It's about having a great relationship. It's about uh, living a great life. Um, you know, you two's about the possibilities of life. It's, they're very spiritual. It's kind of hidden. You you might not realize how spiritual they are. It's all that stuff wrapped into one. Uh, and you identify this with someone special in your life? I mean, I have to ask that question. Well, I have someone special in my life, but in general terms, you know, life is, you know, elevation is about a collaboration anyway. You can't do it. You can't do it alone no matter what it is. So, yeah. I love the lyrics, by the way. A star lit up like a cigar, strung out like a guitar. It's, it's, it's great. Great. All right. Anyway, back to where we were. How do we know how to treat people? That is, I mean, how do we know, you know, how they want to be treated? Well, yeah. I mean, besides the three types, what is sort of the universal aspect of all three types where you're trying to figure the other guy, other guy or gal out? So we all want to be heard out. That's the hack. Um, 
people are only reluctant to talk because they're not used to being listened to. They expect you to say, yes, but I understand, you know, whatever mechanism there is to get them to shut up because the other person wants to make their point. So all three types love being heard out. And you start hearing people out, you start finding out, yeah, you know, they got common ground. Maybe you find out that they got a better idea than you do. So you need to gather that information, find out who they are, hear them out. All three types like that. Okay. Uh, differentiate for us, if you will, uh, the analyst, the accommodator, and the assertive. Well, the assertive uh, is direct and honest. Uh, they're very competitive. They think very in a very linear fashion. And each type has something they want more than the deal. And it sort of wants to know that you got what they had to say. They're the ones that really kind of, interestingly enough, are the most vulnerable to being heard out because that's what they want. They don't care if they don't get the deal, but they want to be sure you know where they're coming from. And, you know, they, uh, they feel pushy. A uh, classic example that, you know, they generally have a really soft inside. They usually people are shocked at how caring and assertive could be because the manner doesn't seem like that. Um, when I'm in my natural born assertive mood mode, you know, I'm very direct, very honest with people. And one of my colleagues once said, you know, when you get like this, dealing with you is like getting hit in the face with a brick. <laughs> so that's a little counterproductive. Now, the analyst you know, the, the analytical type, you know, the, the flight type, um, which on, on the surface we would call them that, they see conflict as a waste of time. Um, they're distant. They're very methodical. They're great on research. They think things through. They're really proud of how much they know. They still want to fight about it. You, you know, you could, you could never say to an analyst, I disagree, because that's going to drive them away. They're going to seem very distant and cold to you. But you can say, hey, you know what? Let's compare how we see things. And they'll go, okay. They just don't want to fight. They just don't want to argue. They're real good at solving problems on their own. A lot of super successful CEOs were originally analysts because you're going to promote the guy or gal that solves problems on their own and never causes problems. And that's what, that's what analysts do. You know, they, they, they just don't cause problems. They don't like conflict. The accommodator is a relationship-oriented person. A relationship is the number one thing with them. Um, they're, as long as they have a relationship with you, they don't care if they get anything done because the relationship is the objective. Um, they're very likable. And a lot of assertives and analysts are ma masquerade as accommodators because, you know, the other two types sit back and they see how far the relationship-oriented person gets, and they see the relationship-oriented person outdistancing them, and they can't figure out why, and finally they just said, well, that person smiles a lot, and they seem to be really friendly. So as soon as they adopt that sort of as a surface behavior, they get so much farther that way, because ultimately, we got, as we said at the beginning of the show, we got to collaborate, and you're more likely to collaborate with someone you enjoy dealing with. Right. All right. You have negotiation rules. One of them, rule number three, I believe, and that's uh, correct me if I'm wrong, says um, 
you always get someone to agree with your proposal three times in a row. What is the magic to this three times rule? Well, this is and, and even even if you bother with yes. Now, yes is a really iffy word. And, and we take we don't try to get to yes. We try to get to that's right. But if you if you're on yes, there's three kinds of yeses: commitment, confirmation, and counterfeit. Now we are so seduced by the word yes that many times we're going to get the counterfeit yes. It's a lie. People are luring us into providing all sorts of free value. Uh, it's really a it's a maybe or it's a no coming in disguise. But they want as much as they can get out of you for free. So you you know and you you got to kind of you, you got to double check you got to shake if you're on yes you got to shake it hard you got to shake it hard you got to get them to say yes to the same thing not three different yeses which people get very confused by but yes to the same idea three times in the same conversation and you know I you know one time we somebody's trying to hire us for our services and I said you know I'm, I'm we're expensive we cost a lot of money. And they said, all right, you know, I'm prepared to pay because what they wanted was to get the service and owe the money after the fact and then not pay. That's mm-hmm. real common. So I said, you know, so um, so if we, if we uh, and I'm talking to this person face to face. So I said, you know, you don't have the money to pay, but you're going to have it soon. So if I provide you with the service, you, you're, you're going to pay in plenty of time. And he says, yeah, because people are so seduced by yes the liars are only used to saying it once. So I looked at him again. I said, so you're sure you're going to pay as soon as you get the money? And he almost turned completely to his left and then turned back and looked at me again and went, yeah. Now he was lying and was so shocked that he was going to have to say yes to me more than once. He almost melted down and was so caught off guard that I needed to hear it more than once. And I was this yes to the same question, not three different yeses. These are two. There's a difference between a, a thoroughbred and a donkey are the differences between these two things. So when you if somebody's lying to you, they'll never be able to give you more than one solid yes in a row because they're so shocked that you didn't buy it the first time. And they're going to give you what some people refer to as tells. There's going to be a serious tell. They're going to look to the side. They're going to hesitate. They're going to look up. You know, their head almost might pop off their shoulders. They're so shocked because they know they're lying to you. And they're shocked that the one wasn't enough. Yeah, that's uh, that's a similar technique that's used often in interrogation. Uh, but uh, how much similarity is there, do you think, a good interrogator may use uh, to that you know, which is, you know, negotiation skill. Well, you know, a, a great interrogator, not just a good, but a great interrogator, doesn't even bother with the word yes. Because what they're what they need is the information that supports the contention. And they're really worried about how and what and when and who and specificity of detail. And I happen to be sitting with the guy who's running the hostage negotiation team in the New York office of the FBI just a couple of months ago. And, you know, he's a great guy. And actually we have remarkably similar backgrounds and we're sitting there having a cup of coffee. And I said, you know, as a great negotiator, business negotiation, we didn't bother with the word. Yes, it's useless. How is all important. And he's still not buying that his skills transfer. He's me at a younger age. 
And I say, when was the last time you asked somebody in an interrogation if they committed the crime? We don't ask that. And he never does. And that's when it, the look came over his face. He was like, yeah, I, I never asked narrow questions like that. So to really raise the level of your game, you got to get out of those binary answers. Mm, that's, that's interesting. I should have talked to you years ago when I was a lie detection examiner. and We'd often go to interrogation following a, a bad exam. And, uh, you know, of course, if you're an examiner, you're going to ask very directly, uh, did you take the missing money? You know, and uh, so that's well, let's very go to that for a second, because what you did there, a lot of people miss because you asked them a series of control questions, right? Correct. Because you're laying down and this is what a lot of people miss. And this is exactly what you used to do. You used to lay down how they what they look like when they're telling the truth. Correct. And those control questions are designed. Everybody tells the truth one way. And as soon as they do anything that deviates from that, they're lying. And that and. You will ask those pointed questions at that point in time to set up the profile, the one way they tell the truth. And then after that, it's a setup because now you're asking pointed questions. Like you said, you get a bad exam. Their needles are all over the place. Now you got to find out. Now you got to get into the hows and what's and why's after that, don't you? Correct. That's exactly right. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Chris, there are 10 rules that you teach. I don't want to give them away. I want everybody to get your book. This really is a good book. Um, so if you only had one of those rules that you could operate with, just one, what would you consider to be the most important rule and why? Probably uh, the secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. Flesh um, that out for us. Well, it... Control-oriented negotiators are really easy to get them to drop their guard. They only want to feel like they're in control, then they start giving away the farm, and it's an illusion. Um, so a control-oriented negotiator is going to want to talk the whole time. I'll be like, all right, I'll keep you talking until you come up with my my ideas. I'll let you talk you into my position. You know, I'll let, I'll let you have my way. And then when you've talked yourself into it because you want, wanted to feel like you were in control, you want to talk the whole time, I'll look at you and I'll say, wow, brilliant, let's do that. And then you'll implement the heck out of it because you thought it was your idea. I just let you talk yourself into my idea. I take it from your book, a story in your book, that uh, when you were negotiating for an imaginary amount of money that you would – you would gain uh, that these intellectuals as you describe them that you were negotiating with people that you you say are smarter than you although i don't know that that's true it's just your <laughs> words uh they were of the type you just described they confident yeah. erudite overly yeah. intelligent and, and and it was easy for you to take advantage of them uh as a result yeah, it's kind of crazy. I remember coming across some really solid information a number of years ago that said that high IQ people are highly educated, are not terribly great negotiators because they're more interested in showing off what they know than actually learning from you what's going on. Yeah. All right. Your book discusses three types of leverage. <clears throat> what are they? And flesh them out for us. Well, you know, and I'm going to take a 90-degree turn on you. Okay. Uh, because 
that's one of the sections that when we update the book or write another one, you know, we'd leave that out entirely. We think now completely in these days in terms of influence and not leverage. Okay. Because leverage is, you know, I used to say as a hostage negotiator, there's always leverage. Jim Camp, author of Starwood, Starwood Noah, said there's no such thing as leverage. So what's a lesson you take away from there? Leverage is this mystical, emotional idea. It's about perception. It's about what you think of what the other side has. Not what they have, but what you think of it. It's not what you have on them. It's what they think of what you have on them. Mm-hmm. So we want leverages to be, to be this quantifiable definition of the ability to inflict loss. But if the other side doesn't feel the loss we, the way we want them to, then if we thought we had leverage now, are we powerless? That's what you get into when you, if you're a leverage-oriented negotiator, because you're, you're making assumptions about power, dynamics. If they're talking to you at all, you got leverage. It's your job to not screw it up, or it's your job, based on the way human, human nature reacts, to use the emotional intelligence tools to reframe the situation for them so they see it differently, which then changes everything. So it's really about influence. All right. Your book suggests that you should, you know, use time as an advantage. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily always possible, but what do you mean by how do you use time as an advantage? Yeah, well, we used to always, I never counseled people to be patient because that seemed to them to be very passive and like they were doing nothing. And I'd say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to use patience as a weapon. And then they go like, ooh, all right, that's different. I can be proactive by doing nothing. <laughs> so again, you know, that's, that's how you frame it in somebody's mind. But, you know, time is, everybody has expectations of how long something is going to take. And they typically underestimate how long it takes them to actually do something. But I need to get, I need to tease out from you your expectations of how long this is going to take then I need to really understand a process and how long it's going to take us to get stuff done. And if we don't engage, you may have a deadline of next Friday. And if I let it hang like that, you're not going to get worried till Thursday, but we may actually have four days of work in front of us. So I got to kick you into gear sooner than that and get you to feel it sooner than that. Or I need to walk away now, walk away now, but the deadline's not till next Friday. Yeah, but we got too much work to do between now and then. So you, you sort of get out of the idea of time and you get much more into process and progress. The other thing, too, is you're going to put a deadline on me of next Friday. But if we're making real progress between now and then, then your deadline's going to go away. Interesting. I, I'm going to have to ask you a couple of personal questions here, Chris, because you're just feeding off some things here uh in my own family and i have a wonderful family two boys and my wife they're very aware of what i did for a number of years and so if i begin to question one of them about something anything it doesn't matter they'll immediately come after me as an interrogator would you stop that interrogate how does your family i mean your family and friends 
understanding who you are, the techniques you use, but how do they feel about it? You know, uh, they largely ignore it. Uh, you know, my, my, my siblings, my, I got three sisters, one older, two younger, my mom, you know, they, uh, this negotiation stuff, this hostage negotiator guy is just like they see it as, you know, my uh, stage identity or something. You know, they know me forever and they, they react to me, which actually all they want from me is understanding anyway. Um, my my girlfriend who hears me talk about this stuff all the time. Some of it she's hypersensitive to. And but since as a human being, everybody wants to be understood. Uh, she just wants me to understand at the end of the day and she wants the opportunity to talk and you know we had dinner together last night I'm out of town all the time and she wanted me to sit and listen to her for an hour because she you know as human beings we want to be listened to sure and we had a, we had a wonderful evening last night and I was a great negotiator I didn't say a word <laughs> <laughs> But, but there is a, a sort of hypersensitivity that develops. Uh, I, I, I think it's very normal, at least based on the experience that I have. I got a yeah. second question for you. And if you don't want to touch this one, I understand. Uh, but, you know, I it, it saddens a lot of people uh, what's going on today in, in our country. Uh, polls tell us today that the FBI support is eroding among the public. Among Democrats in the latest poll, 67% trust the FBI to do what is right most of the time or just about always. Now, this contrasts with only 39% of the Republicans surveyed, and these findings are in stark contrast with other polls taken as recently as three years ago that showed higher levels of support for the FBI among Republicans than Democrats. The latest is the former director, James Comey, stumping for Democrats, insisting that they, quote, have to win this next election. To say that the Bureau has become political in the minds of many is obviously an understatement. I mean, when you see this politicization of the Bureau, Chris, what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, you know, it, it hasn't quite spilled that into the open as intensely in this much before. Um what I get the biggest kick out of now these days is, you know, the Democrats are defending the FBI and, and 10 years ago they would rather be set on fire than to, to defend yeah. the FBI. So, you know, it's it's what's going on in the moment. I mean, I, I, I wish I could tell you the man that, that said this, but I heard a guy giving a lecture a couple months ago and he said, pay attention to the data and not the headlines. Like the headlines, you know, are distilled, I want to distill down the worst to us on a given moment. Everything, you know, nothing stays the same. The the uh, the public support for the FBI is going to wane and lag, and it's going to come back. And the minute this White House needs the FBI to bail him out of something, they're going to he's going to, you know, he when they talk about the Central American uh, uh, terrorists and the criminal gangs, and he goes and then he goes off and begins to talk about how great the FBI is, you know. So the opinion polls of the moment are just. You know, it's just like we're standing the waves. You, you, you're going to get waked and things are going to smooth out after 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 the waves are gone. All right. We're short on time and I have got another, what, 18 questions here for you. Maybe <laughs> we're going to have to bring you back. So I'm going to look at 
wrapping up a couple here quick points. Tell me, share with our audience the Ackerman plan. You know, Ackerman, Mike Ackerman. Uh, borrowed this, stole this, derived it. You know, I check with Mike and uh, about this, but it's it's the three phases of bargaining. It's 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 the smartest bargaining system that we've ever come across. If you get into bare knuckle bargaining, it takes into account human nature, the the feelings the other side needs to feel successful, how to handle incremental gains. And people that learn the Ackerman bargaining system, you don't you don't make a deal in one setting. You're going to make it in three rounds of bargaining, and we show you exactly how to work your way through it. And if you layer in heavy doses of empathy, you probably are settling and by the second round on your price before you even get to the third round. And this is all fleshed out in your book. So, uh, you know, once again, I want everybody to have the title of this, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. Why the subtitle? Is the, as if my life depended on it. Yeah, you know, we get stressed out. And the little, you know, our biggest problem is our biggest problem. And, you know, so much we react as if it was our life depended on it. So, hey, if you feel stressed, you've been taken hostage on some level. And this is a way to deal with that. Okay, it is a great book. Listen, Chris, I want everyone to know how to learn more about you. Find your blog and book again. And and, and if you're doing any presentations, public presentations, or, you know, some of the businesses out there that listen to this show, business people, want to uh, bring you in um, and have you address their audience, uh, take, take a minute and share that information with our audience, please. Yeah, well... Um... Info at BlackSwanLTD.com is, is to email us, to engage us, whether you need a keynote, whether you need training for your company, whether you're an individual. I mean, we like the superstars. More and more superstars we're training on, on an individual basis, really more than companies. And we coach negotiations as well, too. I mean, I, I asked our coaches the other day, as a general rule, do you think we're how much time, I'm guessing we save two-thirds, cut two-thirds of the time normally required out of a negotiation? Think about how much time you could get back if it took you only a third as long as you're used to handling a negotiation and bring it to resolution. We, we save people massive amounts of time when we coach them. All right, I've got 15 seconds, and I'm going to let you close this one out because I saw you do this in my homework. Mirror words. Tell me about that. Tell you about that? There you go. I love it. We'll let the audience stangle on that. Thank you for your work, Chris, and for your willingness to share it with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.